week I um, found out that my son was graduating from the ROC in welding. So my youngest son, and uh, so I got to go to that. That was, that was wonderful. Um, and he's going to be graduating from high school on Monday. So we have no more high schoolers in the house. It's nice. They're all in college, which now you have to pay for it. So. Or we have to pay for it. You know, it's okay. Uh, we, we are in Jeremiah 51. So finally, finally, we're going to be ending Jeremiah tonight. I know some of you do not want us to end Jeremiah uh, but in actuality, we're not because we're going in the book of Lamentations, which was also written by Jeremiah as well. Uh, Jeremiah 51 verse 9, where we ended um, two weeks ago, it says, We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country, for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come. Let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, and his plan is against Babylon to destroy it because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon, make the guard strong, set up the watchmen, prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done when he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, surely I will fill you with men as with locusts, and they shall lift up a shout against you. And so, Father, tonight as we approach you, I, I thank you so much for nights like this where we can remember what you have done for us. And just like what we're reading tonight in the last of, of the book of Jeremiah, the, the downfall of of this once great nation that numbered in the millions and is now is reduced uh, to the thousands. And in our own lives, we may be going through a hard time. We may be going through something that we may even compare to the downfall of Israel. That maybe it, it's something that has happened tragically in our own lives. Maybe the, the loss of someone that we love or or, or something that has happened in our health, or our work, or finances, or, or maybe all, one and or all the above, whatever it is, Lord, we know that you are still faithful. As Jeremiah is going to show us tonight, as we're going to see, you are still faithful, you are still on the throne. You are still in charge. And you've still defeated all the enemies. You've defeated all the Egypts and the Babylons and the Assyrians in our own lives, Lord. Help us to see that. Help us to really understand that. And that this journey that we're on here on this world is the prelude to what we will get to experience in all of eternity. Uh, the privilege of seeing your glory face to face. To be able to have fellowship with you face to face. To be able to spend eternity in the presence of a loving God who, who died for us so that we could experience that um, fellowship with you forever and ever and ever and ever. So Lord, I ask that you um, prepare our hearts tonight. Lord, I thank you for our, our pastor who filled in last week. I thank you so much for what he does for this church and those that are serving even across the way tonight with our kids. I ask that you would bless them, Lord. Give them energy, give them strength, give them a, a, a break in the summertime, Lord. I, I thank you so much that you would help us to not only be used by you, the gifts that you've blessed us with, the, the many uh, people that have hands and feet serve. I ask that you would help us to see that, that you are working mightily in this church as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, we, we ended two weeks ago with this. Uh, amazing section here in the, the beginning of uh, Jeremiah 51, uh, understanding that Babylon has already fallen. And normally, you know, whether it's prophecy or, 
or you know, someone that's trying to figure out when things are going to take place or who the you know, Antichrist is going to be or who Babylon is going to be or, or who the beast is going to be or who the prophet's going to be that's going to be coming in the name of the Antichrist. And we can get so um, curtailed and, and on these rabbit trails. Uh, the Bible's very clear in every single case, Babylon has already fallen. In fact, uh, if we go to the book of Revelation, every single time we see Babylon represented, it is already decreed to be fallen. We don't have to worry about the enemy. God has already defeated the enemy. And the same thing that we're going to see in the book of Jeremiah as well, just as a reminder from two weeks ago in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That is the first time that Babylon is even mentioned in the book of Revelation reminding those that are in the midst of one of the worst times or the worst time in the history of the world, that Babylon has already fallen. It's already been defeated. And then it goes on in chapter 18, two times in there, Revelation 18, 2, and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul, foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And then skipping ahead to verse 10, standing at a distance for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And this is exactly what we're reading about in the book of Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah is predicting through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what will happen to Babylon before it even happens. As we read two weeks ago in verse 11, the king of the Medes and the Persians is going to rise up and defeat Babylon. Predicted at least 50, probably even 60 years before it's going to happen. That this Babylon that is conquering the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, that has taken all these captives to Babylon is going to be judged herself. And God is telling the people, you don't have to worry. Even though you're going to be in a, another country, God will still protect you. How, how much comfort is that to you? Because we get overwhelmed by our problems. I know I do. We get overwhelmed by the things that we think are big in our lives that you know, us in our own strength can't handle, uh, but we have a God who can handle it. And whatever that problem is, it's already fallen in the eyes of God. God has already conquered that problem. It's amazing as it continues on in the rest of this section, verse 15, it shows us the omnipotence, the power of our God. What, what does it say there in verse 15? He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom, his omniscience, and has stretched out the heaven by his understanding. All the things that man hasn't even begun to experience or understand or calculate or figure out with science, God already knows. We're discovering new things all the time, right? And God already designed it all. The heavens, the farthest reaches of the universe. God has already designed, planned it. And by the way, we can't even see the farthest reaches of the universe. Because it's too slow to get here with light. God has already designed it. This, this is the understanding as it continues on. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. God in his brilliant design for nature itself. And by the way, he's describing this to not only Israel, but to Babylon as well, which was the leading educational society of the day. They, they had universities. 
They had, you know, high levels of mathematics. They had the ability to build buildings and, and gardens and beautiful things that they were able to do with science. And yet God is showing them that even the weather cycle that wasn't even understood at this time, that even, you know, weathermen today can't predict correctly, is designed by God in a perfect way. It describes the weather cycle right here. How, how water evaporates and goes up into the atmosphere and then comes down as rain. The, the beauty of the word of God. But how does it describe man in the next section there? <clears throat> Hopefully we, we are humble enough to understand that you know, in our own uh, pride, our own knowledge, we need to understand this as well. Everyone is dull-hearted and without knowledge. Compared to who? Compared to the previous section, who is omniscient and omnipotent and created everything. The knowledge that we have, even the smartest man with a whatever IQ above 200 is still... As it says here in a nice way, dull-hearted, without knowledge. Compared to God, everyone is stupid, dumb, without knowledge, compared to the infinity of his knowledge. And by the way, he's talking about not only the wise men of the day, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. This is where the wise men would have come from that go to see Jesus Christ at his birth. These would have been the wise men in the book of Daniel who, you know, had amassed all this amazing knowledge to be able to interpret dreams. To be able to give uh, wisdom and counsel to the king of Babylon. And what is he saying about all those people? They have a, a super minuscule amount of knowledge compared to the immensity of God. And this is why Daniel will be able to put all of them uh, to shame. For his, uh, excuse me, every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image, for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them, just like Kat was uh, describing earlier uh, tonight, the understanding that even the most skilled of craftsmen, the most skilled of, of a metalsmith who is able to make intricate works, all, all their works are just um, their own talent, their own crafting. It is nothing that will become alive in any way, shape, or form, yet people bow down to those things. They, they elevate those things above uh, God, and yet they are um, just a hunk of metal. No breath, no ability to smell, no ability to hear, and no ability to see. They are, as it says in verse 18, futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of its inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Who is God? Compared to anything. And, and yes, amazing things can be made by human beings. But can we ever create something that is any way, in any shape, in any form, like God? No. God, as it says here, is the maker of all things. And who has he chosen as in his inheritance? Israel, and we'll find out later on that the Gentiles as well, or uh, the earth. The Lord of hosts is his name. Look at how he describes those that he has chosen. Look, look in the next section. What is it like to be used by God? I mean, it is powerful. The imagery that you see here. What is it like to be used by the hand of an almighty all-powerful creator of all things. What does it say there in verse 20? 
Put your name in there, by the way. If you are a Christian, if, if you have been chosen by God, what have you been designed for? To be used by God. And all of us, by the way, have been given gifts. Every single one of us. If you are a Christian, you have been given a gift to be used by God. And how does he use you? It's amazing. You are my battle axe. And my weapons of war. For with you I will break the nations in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. Every single one of these verses, these phrases, start with the exact same Four words, with you I will break in pieces the horse and the chariots. With you I will break in pieces the chariot and his rider. With you also I will break in pieces men and women. With you I will break in pieces old and young. With you I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden. With you also I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen. And with you I will break in pieces governors and rulers. God will use this nation in the midst of one of the mightiest powers on the planet at this time to bring down the downfall of Babylon. Now, now you know, if, when we get to the book of Ezekiel and when we get to the book of Babylon, you're going to see how God does this by using these men that he has placed perfectly in key positions within the Babylonian hierarchy, within the Babylonian political system. Perfectly placed, by the way. And God will use those people to be in strategic positions within the Babylonian Empire. And guess what? Is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yes. He uses you. He uses you. He uses you in key positions, whether it's in your family or your sphere of influence or your job or people that you are in contact with. You are God's battle axe. You are in the hands of an almighty God in a perfect position to teach people who God is. If you are a Christian, you are being used by God. The problem is what we do is we think, oh, I, God can't use me. I, I'm not a battle axe. I'm just a, you know, some sort of, you know, flimsy toy in his hands. Is God's word true? Yes. Look at how he describes you. Underline that. Highlight verse 20 to 23. Look what God does with his people. Look how God uses his people in strategic positions. In fact, it describes it here to the greatest empire on the planet at the time of this writing in verse 24. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Can you imagine Jeremiah writing this, this little piddly nation that's literally less than 5,000 people at the time of this writing? How is God going to accomplish this? How is he going to carry this out? This great massive empire, how is God going to use us to bring down their downfall? God does. And in 70 years, they're going to come back to the land Verse 25, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They will not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be utterly or desolate forever, says the Lord. Set up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call the kingdoms together against her. Ararat, Mani, Ashkenaz, 
appoint a general against her, cause the horses to come up from the bristling uh, locusts. Again, all this imagery that you see here. In fact, the very first nation that's going to be used, this Ararat, you've heard that before in the Bible. This is modern-day Turkey. This is where the ark landed or settled on Mount what? Ararat, modern-day Turkey. Or as it continues on here in the rest of this uh, uh, section, it says, uh, and the land will tr tremble and sorrow for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They have remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. They became like women. They have burned her dwelling places, the bars, of her gates are broken. One runner will run to meet another and one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. The passages are blocked. The reeds, they are burned with fire and the men of war are terrified. We saw two weeks ago how God's going to bring the downfall of Babylon as they are worshiping their gods partying throughout the night with the cups and the utensils from the very holy of holies of the temple itself. And how in one night they will be destroyed. As Daniel is there in their midst too, an eyewitness account of what's going to happen. Verse 33, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. When it is time to thresh her yet a little while, the time of her harvest will come. That idea that, you know, what happens on the threshing floor. I'm sure, you know, all of us today, we, we go to the store and we buy flour already, you know, milled and everything like that. But, you know, of course, you know, 2,000 years ago, 2,600 years ago, even 1,000 years ago, even 100 years ago, people used to have to take their, their wheat to a common place in a, a city or a, a nation and, or a, a town and they would have to take their wheat there and have it you know threshed or, or separated and the way it was done was with a beating you know they they had to beat that wheat out and then separate it from uh, the chaff this is what's going to happen to uh, Babylon and God is going to use Judah to be able to do this. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured her. He has crushed her. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies and he has spit me out. Let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will please your, plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. By the way, this echoes the previous section where it would say that the reeds would catch fire. And of course, where does reeds grow? Yeah, in water, where, where it would be very, very difficult for these plants to burn up because of the water that is there. This would only happen if the water has been drained or in a drought season. The only way it could happen. And so the prediction that we see here that not only will the springs dry up, the sea itself will dry up as well. And what will happen with the lack of water? There'll be these massive wildfires. And of course, we live in a, you know, a, a very high risk of fire. You know, we understand that. But for the people that live in, you know, marshy areas or, or are beside rivers or beside the ocean where there is an abundance of water, this would have been devastating. To cause this amount of uh, destruction 
Verse 37, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions' whelps in their excitement. I will prepare their feast. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. And by the way, this is how it will take place when Daniel as an eyewitness will be actually able to see in one of their feast times, in one of their parties, in their time when they are drunk, will be brought down and destroyed. Verse 41, oh, how Shazak is taken and how the praise of the whole kingdom is seized, how Babylon has become a desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, though which no son of man may pass. I will punish Bel in Babylon and I will bring out his mouth with what he has swallowed and the nations will not stream or shall not stream to him anymore yes the wall of babylon shall fall exactly what happened to jerusalem by the way will be happening to babylon too can you imagine the city that literally had one of the seven wonders of the world the, the gardens of babylon worshiping these gods, the, the gods that we saw about two or three weeks ago, this god Bel and, and Marduk and all these other gods that they proclaimed as theirs that gave them their treasures and their power, what will God do to them and bring them down? In fact, the imagery here is, I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed. Wow. Do you see it? And of course, who have they swallowed? They swallowed, you know, Jerusalem. They swallowed Judah. They swallowed Israel. And what's God going to do? Literally, 70 years later, he's going to bring them out of the abyss. And bring them back to the land. Can you imagine Jeremiah pinning this? How is this going to happen, God? And then those that come back reading this prophecy, seeing how God has predicted them perfectly, accurately. Does God still do the same today? Yes, he does. Verse 45, my people go out of the midst of her and let everyone dwell, deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord unless your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. A rumor will come one year and after that in another year a rumor will come and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of uh, Babylon, her whole land shall be ashamed and all her slain shall fall in, in her midst. By the way, this is pre-internet time. Uh, this is pre-web time. This is pre-HTTP time. This is pre-all the information age time. And yet what was important to them at this time, it was the rumors, it was the mill, it was the ability to get information and what are they going to hear in the rumor mill? What, what are they going to hear on their, you know, web? Yeah, the rumors of the day. Exactly the same thing. What will it cause the people of Babylon? And unfortunately, you know, and, and you know, we can get caught up in, in you know, just as much as as, you know, people uh, 2,000 years ago or, or people that, you know, may uh, always watch the news or always look on the latest blog or always look on the web or whatever it is, the internet, and we try to find information when we have all the information right before us in the Word of God. And we can get overwhelmed rather than believe that our God is bigger than all the problems of this world. That God is bigger than all the things that we can worry about, the rumors that we can get so caught up in. 
I love verse 48. And the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon. For the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. All of nature cries out his praise. All of nature sings forth the glory of God. All of nature testifies to who God is. Because he created them all. Verse 49, as Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. You who have escaped the sword, get away. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers have come into the sanctuary of the Lord's house. This is so important to understand. This is so important to understand. Because who was the temple for? Not, not just the, the outer parts of the temple, but, but even the holy place and the holy of holies. You see, strangers, these Babylonians, these people that are coming in to destroy uh, the temple, they are going into a place which was only able to be accessed once a year by one person, the high priest. And now they're walking, trotting on the very holy of holies. And as we're going to see at the end of this in the, the next chapter, uh, the immensity of the, the beauty of this temple. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images and throughout all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon were to mount up to heaven and though she were to fortify the height of her strengths, yet my plunderers would come to her, says the Lord. Even if they were the greatest of all greatest of nations, even if they were to build themselves up to the very heights of heavens themselves, what would God do to them? The angels of heaven would destroy them. God would destroy the nation. No nation can ever ascend to the heights of God himself. The sound of the cry comes from Babylon, the great destruction from the land of Chaldeans, because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice. Though her waves roar like great waters and the noise of their voice is uttered, because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows is broken, for the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. This is quoted in the New Testament, by the way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And I will make drunk her princes, her wise men, her governors, her deputies, her mighty men. And they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts. This title is repeated in the very next verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts by wit, by by, you know, just looking at these words, you can see uh, that it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the name of God who is in charge of all the armies of heaven themselves, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, the one who's in charge of every single one of the armies of heaven. The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. Verse 59. Tone changes for the rest of the book. It's no longer a prophetic word, but now it goes back to the current time when Jeremiah is writing this. It describes in summary the downfall of Jerusalem. Look at how it describes it. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Sariah was the quartermaster. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon. This book, by the way, this is going to be read by Daniel. These prophecies are going to be read by Daniel himself 
in a foreign land. By the way, this is the commander of the Babylonian army, the quartermaster of the Babylonian army. This letter, this book is being given to him to be taken with the captives in Babylon, and Daniel's going to be reading this book. We'll see it when we get to the book of Daniel. You can read it there in chapter 7, chapter 8 of the book of, of Daniel. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you will tie a stone on it, throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her and they shall be weary. Thus far the words of Jeremiah. This book is going to be used by God. Chapter 52 it's a lot shorter than the previous uh, chapter. It's amazing how Jeremiah now sums up everything that has happened in the last previous 51 chapters. If you want the Reader's Digest version, the condensed version of the book of Jeremiah, it is here in chapter 52. Look at the destruction that takes place in Jerusalem. Look at the immensity of wealth that is removed from Jerusalem to Babylon. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in, Bab in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from this presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. This is the first exile. This is the first time that Babylon comes. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of Zedekiah. You can just do the calculation. This is a little over a full year. And by the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. There is not only a drought, there's not only famine, there's disease as well. We're going to read about this more when we get to the book of uh, Lamentations, when we actually see the emotions and, and the, you know, what the people are feeling and experiencing behind the city walls. Then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled and went out the city at the night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around and they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered with him. This isn't very far actually they, where, they, where they were going. They were trying to go toward the Jordan River where Jericho was at, and they're captured. They took the king, and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on them. We've already read this many, many times, but it bears reading again because this is what happens when a king turns tail and runs. The king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah and Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, the king of Babylon, bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, put him in prison till the day of his death. The very last thing he sees is the death of his sons. This last king of Jerusalem, the one who was descended from David, by the way. Rather than being a godly king, what does he do? He turns tail and runs. Now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord. That is so important. 
And, and to a Jewish person reading this, this is devastating. This is wailing. This is lamentation. This is everything that makes up the tone of not only Jeremiah, but the book of Lamentations as well. Not only the people are being destroyed, hurt, killed, but the temple has now fallen. This temple that was built by King Solomon to be the wonder of the world where kings and queens would come and see the glory of God here on this earth is now being destroyed by Babylon. They burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people. The rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the craftsmen. We'll find out those numbers in just a little bit. By the way, the previous section describes this great wall of Jerusalem being destroyed. This would have been no small feat. Because the walls of Jerusalem had been not only built by King David, they had been reinforced over and over and over again by kings like Uzziah and Hezekiah. They, they had battlements on top of these towers that had catapults and ballistas that were used to repel armies, and they are now literally torn to the ground. Jerusalem has fallen. Not only that, but verse 17, it describes these massive pillars of bronze. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. By the way, if you read uh, 2 Kings chapter 7, it describes these amazing pillars. This amazing bronze sea. In fact, there's a picture of this that I want to uh, show you guys. It'll, it'll be up on the, the screen here. Uh, it, it just gives a little bit of a picture of what the bronze sea and the pillars look like. The, the pillars are there in the center of the temple. There were two of them uh, made out of bronze. They, they were literally 18 feet in circumference. That means if... If three guys were touching their hands tip to tip, it would take three of them to surround this one column. And the column is 27 feet tall too. So massive as it says here, they had to be broken apart in order to be transported to Babylon. And then this, this sea, this, this uh, big huge pool, if you will, that was used outside of the temple. You can see a blow up on the left there. And then in the middle, you can see a, a more miniature version of that massive sea. It was 45 feet in circumference. It was 15 feet across. It could hold over 2,000 gallons of water, and it was supported on life-size oxen that were made out of bronze. You can see the, you know, kind of the resemblance of those two guys, that if they were, you know, six feet tall, how they would compare to that massive bronze sea. And then the temple itself, of course, was also destroyed. All Anything of value was taken out of it and carted to... Babylon. You can see the descriptions here in the summary at the end of the book of uh, Jeremiah. The basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. Anything of value is carted away now to where? Babylon. 
the two pillars, one sea, the 12 bronze bowls, all those things that you just saw were under it. And the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all these articles was beyond measure. There was so much that they weren't even, even when at the time of, of when they made these things, weren't even able to calculate the amount of bronze that was put into these bronze pieces. They're broken apart, carried away, verse 21. Now, concerning the pillars, and I, I want to, you know, just skip ahead here really quickly. We're going we're gonna to actually read this in the NLT because there's a reason why. Uh, and, and, you know, if you know me, I normally read from the New King James Version. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Ezekiel. But there is a certain times when the NLT is very, very good when it comes to measurements and numbers, because it automatically calculates for us what these cubits are. You know, what's a cubit? You know, what's a hand's breadth? And the NLT actually does it, you know, without us having to think. But, but if you do use the King James Version or the New King James Version, you just multiply the number by 1.5, Okay. But if you, you know, want to be uh, lazy, you can just read the, you know, uh, the New Living Translation. It, it says there in verse 21 in the NLT, and those guys in the back are amazing because they can switch between these two uh, translations without even, you know, thinking. In verse 21, it tells us exactly in the NLT, each of the pillars was 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. They were hollow with walls three inches thick. And compare that to the New King James when you get home and you'll see the difference because, it, you know, it's, it's amazing. The bronze capital on top of each pillar was seven and a half feet tall and was decorated with a network of bronze pomegranates all the way around. There was 96 pomegranates on the side and a total of 100 pomegranates on the network around the top. And by the way, in the New King James Version, if you were to read this, you have to read the words. In the NLT, it actually shows the numbers. Another, you know, shortcut. And the same thing at the end of the chapter, skipping ahead to verse 28 there. The number of captives taken to Babylon in the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was 3,023. Do you understand the, the minuscule amount of this number? Because when Israel left Egypt... They numbered in the millions. Three, four, five million people. And now some 400, 500 years later, when they are literally devastated, and this is going to happen in three stages, by the way, there are going to be less than 5,000 people left. This once great nation reduced down to the low thousands. Look at the numbers. Verse 29, then in Nebuchadnezzar, 18th year, this is the second time he comes. He took 832 more. Uh, this would have been the Ezekiel time period. This is when, when Ezekiel would have been taken. And in Nebuchadnezzar's 23rd year, he sent Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, who took 745 more, a total of 4,600 captives in all. And, and of course, then there's the, another small amount that's still in Egypt. But, but in total, this number of people that are left in the nation of Israel itself are literally reduced down to the point percentages, to the very, very small amounts of uh, numbers. Tonight, we get the privilege of taking communion. There's uh, around the room, there's um, uh, these things here that, that you can get the communion elements. Uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Second Corinthians. And tonight I wanted to go back to the, the book of Matthew because we see there an uh, amazing picture of what it is like to have communion with the God of the universe. And it ties in so well with what we've just been reading. 
this nation has been devastated. You may feel devastated tonight. I don't know. Like all your dreams are shattered. Everything is going not your way. That problems exist in your life that you can't solve. Tonight as you come forward or to the side, you can grab one of these and and hold it in your hand. And, and as we read these verses, um, just be grateful for what God, the maker of the entire universe, has done for you. Because we can look at our circumstances. We can all look at our circumstances and see the immensity of our problems. It is so easy to do. We do it all the time. And Jesus, in the night that he's going to take this, is about ready to be betrayed. In the night that he takes this, he's going to be beaten, scorned, tortured, crucified. The immensity of the problems that Jesus knows he's going to face. It is beyond anything that we will ever experience, even more than what the people in Jerusalem were going to experience during the time of Jeremiah. You see, Jesus is going to have to bear the sins of the entire world. Your sins, my sins. Jeremiah's sins, by the way. Zedekiah's sins, by the way. The sins in the past... And the sins in the future. We, we don't truly understand that. The immensity of that. Oh, God, God took my sins upon his body on the tree. Oh, my, my, my however many think, sins you think you've done. You know, in the hundreds or thousands or millions or billions or trillions or whatever it is. Now multiply that by billions and billions and billions of people. This is what Jesus Christ was going to bear for us on the cross so that we could experience communion with him. And so, so that we can have fellowship with him. This is what Jesus is explaining to the apostles in that upper room in the Last Supper as he takes the bread as he takes that loaf and breaks it. And this is what he says there in Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, and, and really understand what Jesus tells his disciples. Take, eat, this is my, wow. What is Jesus telling those disciples, and us here tonight too, by the way? This is my broken body for you. So that you can have fellowship, communion with me. Because if I don't go to the cross and die for your sins, you don't get to go to heaven. You, you don't get to experience eternity. There's no hope for humanity without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So tonight we do the same. Take, eat. This is my body. In verse 27, and it's so easy to get into a rut. It's so easy to make this a tradition. It's so easy to make this a, a ritual. It's so easy to just, oh, I'm going to take the communion. I'm going to take a little wafer. I'm going to take a little cup of, of grape juice. But every single time that Jesus does this, he, he says this on purpose then he took the cup and he gave thanks. Every single time he gives thanks. He gives thanks for the bread. He gives thanks for the cup. He gives thanks for the suffering. He gives thanks for the broken body. He gives thanks for the shedding of the blood. Wow. 
gives thanks for the suffering. He gives thanks for the torture that he's going to go through for you and for me. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, even including the one that's going to betray him, by the way. That's what all of them means. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So tonight we remember and we rejoice that we get to have the privilege of having communion with God forever in heaven at the Lamb's celebration, the Lamb's wedding feast. So tonight we take this. Many times we just end there. We never read the next verse. Verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so as our tradition on Wednesday nights, the first of the month, we always sing a hymn. By the way, this is going to be taken from the next book that we're going to be starting next week, the book of Lamentations. You'll probably recognize it right away. If you don't, you will after the first or second verse. Stand with me, please, as we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, the mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and Spring diamond of us, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature and manner fold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, no mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. String for today and bright hope. For tomorrow, blessings all mine within thousand besides. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, 
the mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So, Father, tonight we thank you that even in the midst of one of or the worst time in the history of Israel, the destruction of the temple, the downfall of the walls, the, the people being carted away and taken to a strange land, all the, the holy utensils being um, used in, in the debauchery of Babylon, that you were still faithful. You were still in control. You were still on the throne. And as we'll read about in the book of Lamentations there in the middle of, of the, the book that is the saddest in, in all the Bible that we have to do ourselves even to remind us, uh, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness is new every morning. His faithfulness will never fail. Because God is always faithful. So Lord, in comparison, our, our problems are so minuscule compared to that. And yet, you are still faithful to us. You're still in charge. You're still on the throne with us. You're still there for us. You're still reminding us every single day as that sun rises that you are still there for us with, with new mercies, new loving kindnesses, new compassions, new grace every single day. Lord, remind us, remind us, remind us. And as we remember the taste on our mouth of the, those communion elements to uh, realize that you suffered and died for us so that we could be reminded that you are faithful all the time, all the time, all the time. So Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my family tonight, the time that they've given up to um, be here Lord, I ask that you would not help us leave the same way we came in, that we would be reminded of who you are tonight and your faithfulness to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here uh, tonight.